0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is a long chapter, 29 verses. We'll we'll get through about half of the chapter tonight. And so keep your notes for next time. It's a great chapter. I don't know if I'll do it justice or not, but uh, these are the writings of Solomon. He was the uh, uh, second king of Israel. And he was a great king. He asked God one day to give him a wise and understanding heart. And uh, the Bible says he became the wisest man on earth because of that request. I don't think God's any um, respecter of persons. I think anyone here tonight that would ask the Lord to give you a wise and understanding heart, I think he'd answer that prayer. So he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 songs. And many of those Proverbs are documented for us in the book of Proverbs. That would be the wisdom of his young years. He reigned for 40 years as the king of Israel. After about 15 years of reigning, he got away from the Lord. And he left the Lord and all the wisdom God gave him. He began to live a secular, humanistic life. And a couple years before his death, he came back to his senses. He came back to the Lord And he wrote this book here, Ecclesiastes. So Proverbs was written while he was a young man. Ecclesiastes is written now while he's an old man, after he had tried everything the world could offer him. And so he's writing now the book of Ecclesiastes just a couple years before he dies. He's basically writing about how foolish he was, how vain he was, to think that the world could satisfy Him. And all the different things He tried in the world to satisfy Him, never satisfied Him, left Him empty. He called it vanity and vexation of spirit over and over again. Now we get to Ecclesiastes 7, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book, where it talks about the better life. Notice the word better in verse 1. The word better in verse 2 the word better twice in verse 3, the word better in verse 5, the word better in verse 8 twice, the word better in verse 10. He begins to talk about the better life. In fact, 22 times you'll find the word better is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Basically, he's reflecting on the fact that he once walked with God, then he walked with the world, but it was better when he had walked with God. And uh, he is imparting this wisdom to us to keep us from making the same mistake. That we ought to just walk with God. And so he tells us about the better life here in the first half of this chapter, which we'll try to get through maybe 13, 14 verses tonight and see how it goes. So bring this sheet back with you. So let's, let's get at it here in verse number 1. So the good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than one's the day of one's birth. Um, precious ointment back in the days of the Scriptures was uh, a person's insurance. They didn't have insurance policies. They saved up ointment and sold the ointment uh, when a woman's husband died. And uh, they would save these... This ointment in very, very expensive boxes. Uh, turn, Keep your place here and turn to the book of Matthew. Uh, the book of Matthew in chapter number 26. This is a famous story. And it says in Matthew 26 in verse number 7, There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And when His disciples saw it, they had indignation. They were very upset. They were very angry, saying, To what manner is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, He said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon Me. For ye have the poor always with you, but Me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on My body, She did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial for her. Now remember, we just read back in Ecclesiastes 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. And she gave her precious ointment to the Lord. All the disciples had indignation. That means they were very, very, very upset. You can just see what they were thinking in their minds. Why was this waste made? Why would this woman take something that is so valuable to her and just throw it out in a moment? She's going to need that to live on someday. Or She could have at least sold it and given it to the poor or something. Well, she gave it to Jesus. And nothing that is sacrificed for the Lord is ever wasted. But Jesus said, Wheresoever this Gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Notice, she ends up having a good name. And her name goes all over the world. As a testimony, anywhere the gospel is preached, this story about this woman has been told. Now, what if she had kept the ointment? How long would that have lasted her? Um, till she died, who knows who would have gotten it. It certainly would not have made history, but it did. See, a good name, she was concerned more about having a good name. She was concerned about her testimony. I want to encourage you now. Go back to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. I want to encourage you now to to be concerned about your testimony. Be concerned about your integrity. Be concerned about your honor. Be concerned about your purity. It is better for you to have a good testimony than to have a lot of money is what it's saying today to us. Um, The reputation of your name. It's more important than uh, how much or how precious your possessions are. In Proverbs chapter 22 and uh, verse 1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So I can't stress you tonight enough on how important it is for you to have a good testimony. And to protect your name. And uh, that's, that's far more important than cutting corners and being dishonest and becoming of ill repute just so you could get some money, uh, and some possessions to try and get ahead. It's more important to have a good name. The second part of verse 1 says the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Uh, The second part of verse 1. For the believer, it says, and the day of death, then the day of one's birth. Keep in mind that as for human beings, after birth it only gets worse, but for the believer, after death it only gets better. Amen? Um, So death is not our enemy. Uh, in the sense that, for those of us who are saved, we know that life only gets better after death, and we ought to celebrate a person's death and the way they die more than their birth. I, I really do think we put much too much emphasis on birthdays, uh, especially with the little children. I would, I would really cut out that nonsense in your home. If your parents, if you are parents with little children, I, I wouldn't throw them birthday parties and stuff like that. I'd wait till their character is formed, until they're six, seven, eight years old, nine years old, or something like that. But we, we have all these big blowout birthday parties, and we make the kids, you know, we train their character at a young age that they're like gods, that uh, the whole world revolves around them. And uh, we didn't have birthdays for our kids until they were older. Uh, I just, I just didn't want them growing up thinking that they're the most important thing on earth, and, and the world revolves around them, and, and uh, big, huge blowout parties for them. I, I just didn't want that for my kids. I, I wanted, I wanted to teach them the day of death, and, and, and how, how they finish, as we'll see later in the chapter. It's more important how they start. I mean, what's the big deal? Become a one-year-old. What kind of achievement is that? There's no achievement in that. Why should it be honored? Um, we, we, got, we got our, I think, the cart before the horse nowadays in our child rearing. We got, we got them out in front leading the family. like The whole family revolves around them. That's, that's dead wrong. That's dead wrong. Uh, it shouldn't be that way at all. Verse 2 says, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. Now notice the word heart in verse 2, the word heart in verse 3, two times the word heart in verse 4, the word heart in verse 7. You see, we're talking about the heart of the matter here. Uh, this chapter, the first part of it gets to the heart. It tells us a better life. And it tells us in each verse it's better to have, to have an emphasis that's almost contrary to everything we've learned in the world, like I just said about birthdays. Now notice verse 2 says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. In other words, it's better to hang around the funeral home than it is the bars and the clubs and the casinos and so on and so forth. Why? For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. A wise person, a living person, will realize, look, uh, this is how it ends. Uh, no man is ready to live until he is ready to die. It's better to go to the house of mourning. It's better to go to a funeral home and, and, and realize, hey, this, this is reality, not the casinos. That's just sparkling glamour and glitz. It's, it's a mirage. It's make-believe. It's uh, uh, delusional. It's delusional. Uh, the bars are that way. It's not reality. The, rea- the, the reality of life is that each and every one of us is going to die. It's the only thing I know for sure about any of you. It's the only thing you know for sure about me. So I'm going to die someday. That you're going to die someday. And we as believers and Bible believers are not, are not afraid to face reality. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. To his heart. The living person has laid it to his heart that, look, I'm going to die someday, so I'm going to prepare now and live now for that day. Verse 3 is another verse that, that seems contrary to natural thinking. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. Again, this is contrary to secular humanistic thinking. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Um, What is the end of laughter? We'll turn back to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14 and verse 13 says this. Even in laughter the heart is made the heart is even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. What it's say, saying here is that laughter and comedy contributes to depression. Laughter and comedy, which people think is some kind of a salve for their soul, some salve for their spirit to make them feel better, ends up causing them to become more depressed ultimately. Uh, It's kind of like any stimulus that somebody trusts in beside Christ to fix their problems. Uh, For example, somebody tries alcohol. And you know that if they keep drinking and keep drinking and keep trusting in drink to satisfy them, they end up worse. Drugs just gets worse. Gambling just gets worse. Whatever it might be that a person thinks will satisfy their thirst and hunger. And the same thing with comedy. Now we are a we are a a, a country that is is a, a addicted to, to comedy, um, movie rentals outnumber the money that is spent in all gambling forms in America by two times. Uh, It's a tremendous, tremendous addiction uh, in our day and age of people who uh, run off, and I believe it's because there are a lot of character people who don't use drugs, they don't use alcohol, and they don't gamble and so on and so forth, but they're still empty inside, they're still dissatisfied inside, and and they've got to find something to make them feel better on the inside, and so they turn to comedy. The Bible says even in laughter the heart is made sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Heaviness is a biblical synonym for depression. All it will do is depress you. But here in verse 3 we see the opposite. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. That's strange. There used to be a formula. Uh, There still is a formula but it's, it's about preaching. It's about going into church. And sometimes the church is called the house of mourning in the Bible. But there's the old formula that says when you hear truth, first of all you get mad, then you get sad, then you get glad. You get mad because it goes against, contrary to your nature. You don't like hearing it. Then you get sad because as you meditate on it, you realize it's truth, you realize you're wrong and God's right, and, and you feel sad, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed, embarrassed, convicted, or whatever it might be. You feel sad. But then you get it right with God and you end up being glad. So we're mad, then sad, then glad. All of us that are saved can think of times in our lives maybe when we came to an altar or we dropped to our knees in our bedroom or something, we prayed to God and we got something right with God and then when you got up off your knees you just felt like a weight's been relieved and, and your, your soul has just been flooded with rays of hope and joy. And that sorrow you had over your condition, and you got it right with God, and you repented, ended up bringing joy to you. That's what verse three is saying. Sorrow is better than laughter. See, if we just, if we just, you know, bury ourselves in laughter, uh, in comedy, movies, and so on and so forth, then the next day we're still the same person. We haven't changed any. But if we repent and we change, then the Lord fills our hearts with gladness. And it says, by sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. And I'm telling you, this Solomon is speaking here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This stuff works. And if you've got something in your life you're sorrowful over, repent of it. I promise you, take it to the Lord, confess it, say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, and he'll take it from you, and, and you'll just uh, you'll feel better. Your heart will be made better. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or partying. So that's pretty self-explanatory. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. James in chapter number 4 and verses 9 and 10 tell us that there ought to be mourning among us as children. It says, of God. Chapter four, verse nine: Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. The house of to church is the house of mourning. It, it's not always fun going to church. Uh, a lot of times it's mourned mourning. Back in the old days, especially the Methodists, they used to put these wood benches up in the front of the church, and people used to come up to the wood benches. Anybody know what those benches used to be called in Methodist history? They were called mourners' benches. They were called mourners' benches. Did you ever hear the mourners' bench? And that's where people used to come up and mourn before God over their sin and over their condition, and they would kneel down by those benches. We call them altar calls now, but they used to call them mourners' benches. The church is like the house of mourning. It says... The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, which that's a compliment tonight. You're here. I uh, hope your heart's here. Uh, but the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is in the church. Uh, we want to get better. We want to improve. That's why we come in here preaching and teaching, and that's why we... Sometimes have to sit through uncomfortable sermons and uncomfortable subjects because we know we're not right with the Lord, but we want to get it right. And so we mourn over our condition before God. We, we feel worse than death. That's what mourning is referring to. Sometimes we feel like death when we're done hearing preaching and teaching. And, uh, but then the heart's made better. But the heart of the fools is out and out of mirth. Don't ever get the heart of a fool and leave church and go after the partying crowd. I think verse 5 builds on this. Verse 5 says, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Uh, Rebuke... uh, it means to admonish, to reprove, to expose something in somebody's life. And uh, the Bible says to the preacher, in Second Timothy says, preach the word, be instant in season out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, all long-suffering and doctrine. That's one of the jobs of the preacher is to rebuke people, that is to expose and to admonish their sin. Of course, he needs to be right with God, too. But it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Again, this is... I mean, just look at verse 5 there and think of the music industry today. Just think of the music industry today and how many people are just... You know, the music industry is so big that it's just become something that has saturated people's minds. There's so much available now with the iPods, and even the Supreme Court the other day had to decide that certain companies that sell music over the internet can't do that. It's like violating copyrights. Because the the music industry is so huge, it's so big. It's such a money-making monster. But there is such a thing in the Bible as the song of fools. Don't think all. Don't think music is immoral. Uh, music is either immoral or moral. Uh, otherwise, the Bible wouldn't say there's such a thing as the song of fools. I I, I I believe the average American has too much music in their life. I mean, just noise everywhere you go. Just noise. You can't get away from it. Just everywhere. You go, radios and, and, you know, Walmart. You go in the restaurants. You are in your car and just music, music, music. And now churches. You know, now churches are that way. They just want to have music, 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 and then have the preacher get up for 10, 12 minutes and preach some little devotionette to a bunch of Christianettes uh, to, you know, keep them entertained. Uh, They want to make the church... Uh, like verse 4, the house of mirth rather than the house of mourning. Shouldn't be that way. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. I mean, what what did people do before all this technology produced all this music? They listened for the still, small voice of God. That's what they listened for. Or they created their own music by learning instruments. And praise the Lord with it. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. Now, have you ever heard the crackling of thorns under a pot? Can you just picture that in your mind right now? Take a big fire and you throw some thorns into it and you hear the crackling of those thorns. doesn't last very long, does it? Did you ever do this? Try to do this if you can. Sometime turn on a comedy show and then listen to the canned laughter in the background. You know what I mean? Listen to the canned laughter and, and listen how they'll tell a joke. The laughter lasts about three seconds, then it's over with. Then they've got to tell another joke. Three seconds with the laughter it's over with. Then they've got to tell another joke three seconds of laughter, and it's over. Then a lot of it's canned laughter. You're just kind of staring at the television thinking, what was funny about that? But you're hearing this laughter in the background. Laughter, laughter, laughter. We used to call it canned laughter. It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Laughter, in other words, verse 6, doesn't last very long. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is also vanity. It's emptiness. It's emptiness. I don't know why people think the Bible's not relevant. It sure sounds like this stuff can help us today. Verse 7, Surely oppression maketh of the wise man mad, and the gift destroyeth the heart. Well, there's some verses I don't know what they mean. This is one. This could mean two completely opposite things, so I'll give you both and you choose. How does that sound? Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. Well, that means that a wise man, for instance, a King Saul or a King Solomon in the Bible whom God gave wisdom to and the Holy Spirit to, can start oppressing the people that are under him And as a result of his oppressing people, he ends up going mad. That's what happened to Saul and Solomon. They were good guys to start with, but then they started oppressing the people. You know, there's an old saying that says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so very, very wise people have become oppressors and ended up going mad. A classic example was Adolf Hitler. He just, just went crazy. Um, on the other hand, this verse could mean the opposite. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. It could mean that a wise man becomes righteously indignant when he sees people oppressed, um, such as perhaps the case of our, our current war in Iraq. You know, seeing the oppression of those people under Saddam Hussein made, Certain wise people mad, made them righteously indignant, and said, Hey, we, we gotta go in there and stop this. Uh, you know, we can't fight every war on earth, but we gotta fight some. And uh, you know, we can't we can't free every oppressed people, but we can free some. You know, we we we, we helped free the Japanese once, we helped free the Germans once, we helped free the Italians once, amen? And uh, we stuck with the job, and we got it done, and now those people are our allies. And so, you know, you got to pick and choose your wars. I understand that. Uh, but, but uh, you know, we fought two wars against very oppressive Germans, but you know, thank God we won them and stuck with it. And uh, now those people have become allies, at least to some extent. Um, So maybe that's what that means, surely oppression. Sometimes wise men become righteously indignant when they see people oppressed. A gift destroyeth the heart, verse 7 also says, which talks about bribery. Uh, Again, this text talks a lot about the heart, the condition of a person's heart, and when somebody in leadership takes a bribe, it can destroy their heart, and we certainly see that in American politics. Uh, with a lot of the uh, uh, special interest groups that pour millions and millions of dollars into different political parties. Verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Again, verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Anybody can start. Uh, but Let's see a finish. Uh, That's what we need to do. We need to have finishers, amen? Uh, We need believers who will be finishers. One-third of all businesses, uh, only one-third of all businesses started 15 years ago are still going. Forty to 60% of all marriages that start today will be finished within seven years. Uh, Good ideas are a dime a dozen, but seeing them out to a completion is what is better. Starting a ministry is something anyone can do, but seeing it to the end is, as it says in verse 8, better. Better. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. You know, we got a lot of newlyweds here tonight. God bless you. Amen. Um, it's wonderful uh, to be in that season of uh, new love and romance and so on and so forth. I hope you'll enjoy every second. But let's see you end the thing. All right, let's see you end the thing. Uh, Let's see you be faithful to the end. Keep your vows, better or worse, rich or poor, sickness or in health, till death do us part. I don't know what's so hard to figure out, out about that death part. Um, but that's what we need. Better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof. And uh, so anybody can start. We've seen that in foundations class. had a big, huge crowd starting that thing. Before that thing's whittled down and whittled down and whittled down as we get to the end here. And only a few people are going to make it through to the end. You know, if all the people that got baptized in this church just still attended... Let alone the people that got saved, but all of them just just got baptized. we'd be desperate to find more land and a bigger building. I hope you'll be an ender. amen. The finisher and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I'll go through a few more of these before we close here. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Uh, here's a better person. a person who is patient in spirit is better than a person who is proud in spirit. Are you patient? in spirit. Examine yourself tonight. Are you patient in spirit? Do you, do you like to wait? Do you have any problem waiting? Trusting in God, being long-suffering, having enduring faith that even though God might not do it in your time, you're willing to wait on him to do it in his time. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Did you ever see the proud in spirit? A proud person puts themselves first. They, they can't they don't think they should have to wait two seconds after the light turns red, or green for the person in front of them to move, because they're important. They need those two seconds. Who does this person think they are holding me up? It's the proud and spirit. That's how they are. They, they can't wait. They've got to have it first. They put themselves first. They always want the best right away. They can't wait. They're irritable. They're sharp. They explode. They have temper tantrums, and everybody else looked at them like really puzzled, like, wow, what set him off? What sent her off? It is pride. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, again, you that have little boys and girls and you're just starting to train them up, please train your little boys and girls to be patient in spirit. Create situations in your home where they're forced to wait. Um, Deal with temper tantrums severely. Uh, make them just, 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 just make them have to be put in situations where they have to wait, and wait, and wait, and wait, and sit quietly while waiting. Teach your children to be patient in spirit and not proud in spirit. We, we see so many adults who are proud in spirit and they're, they're irritable, they have temper blasts, proud wrath, is what one writer said, and that's that's usually where anger is. Rooted, temper tantrums, they're contentious, they're negative, they can't stand to see others succeed, they're sarcastic, they tear people down, kablam, they're constantly triggered by things because they're not patient in spirit. It's better to be patient in spirit. Well, a couple more. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. I think this builds on verse 8. It says the proud in spirit, and then verse 9 says the hasty in spirit. I think a proud person has produced in them a hasty spirit. And pride and anger, if you look up those words in the Bible, they're always attached to each other eventually. When somebody has an anger problem, it's because they're proud, and they won't get that pride out of their hearts be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. They're, they're, they're quickly angry. Um, they, they can't control their temper. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now there's their problem. They let anger rest in their bosom. They never get it out. Uh, they, you know, it may lay there dormant for a while. I mean, it's like, who would have a rabid dog in their house? Well, it looks like he's okay right now. You know, it's the same thing with the person who lets anger rest in their bosom. Well, it's okay right now. In Ephesians 4 and verse 31, it says we ought to put away wrath and anger and malice. And the, the phrase put away is, is synonymous with divorce. When you divorce somebody, you do they, they don't live in the same house with you. Says, put away anger and wrath and, and malice, and um, so you, you, you divorce yourself of anger. You, you get rid of it. You don't let it rest in the bosom of fools. You got to deal with your anger, uh, just like you you wouldn't let a rabid dog in your house. You'd put their dog down know, or send it out to pasture or something. You wouldn't let it inside your house. Same thing with anger. We we. We've got to get rid of our anger. Well, last of all, verse 10 says, Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. You know what it's saying here in verse 10? The good old days weren't so good either. The good old days weren't so good either. That's what it's saying. People were always sinners. People were always wicked. I mean, how many of you would rather be a Christian in the 13, 14, and 1500s than you would today in the United States of America? Anybody? Not me. Man, we have it so easy in America in 2000. I mean, for us who are believers, these are the good old days. Because you wouldn't want to be caught in some places with a Bible back in the 13, 14, 1500s. 1500s, and then watch your kids tortured in front of you uh, and then put into a fire and burned while you you were uh, threatened to recant your faith and then have yourself chained up or your wife chained up and then have her burned. I mean, I don't think that's happened much in America lately, has it? So sometimes the good old days weren't so good. Uh, I wouldn't want to live in Noah's days when a grieved God at his heart that he'd even made man. The days of Sodom and Gomorrah and so on and so forth. I don't know, really, in, in all of history, when it has ever been easier to be a Christian than in 2005 in the United States of America. I really don't know when it has ever been easier to be a Christian than right here in this country, right now at this time in all of human history. So... You know, we we shouldn't say, oh, the old days, long for the old days. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. We ought to thank God. I mean, next Monday, the 4th of July, just get on your knees somewhere. Just thank God for America. You know, when you watch those fireworks going off, I mean, just thank God for America. Say, Lord, thank you for letting me live here. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for letting me go to church on a Wednesday night. No policeman busted in here. Nobody took our Bibles. Nobody chained up anybody. Nobody tortured anybody. Nobody murdered anybody. We are so, so blessed. So, Well, we got to ten verses, but we got to start. We'll finish it next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Uh, Lord, we've seen a lot of wisdom from Solomon about a lot of issues. We pray the Holy Spirit might leave something on our hearts and minds that we would not forget. Please, Lord. Uh, Father, help us to go to the house of mourning, the church, to the mourner's bench, to to have sadness of heart over our sin that we can get it right and then be flooded with the gladness and joy of the Lord. Uh, Father, help us not to mask our hurts and pain with comedy and drink and drugs and, and uh, then be the same person the next day. Lord, thank you for our country. Bless this weekend coming up. Help us to pray for our land. Help our president. Help our troops. Help our church to never complain, oh, Lord, uh, uh, but to go forward while we have this liberty to do your will.